0: It's a mud, mud, mud world. The next person that says Merry Christmas
1: to me, I'll kill him. Travel Bar. I'm Mary, Queen of Cosmos. We're listening to the martinis' both pouring and playing holiday cheer. Albert King kicked off our festivities with Santa Claus wants some lovin'. And Rose Graham volunteered to pull Santa's sleigh, infer what you will, with Black Christmas. Mr. Suave has entrusted me to tend bar at one of his two yearly holiday shows this season. I'm honored and take my responsibilities very seriously. Merry Christmas, Mr. Suave. I hope you're snuggled up under some mistletoe with Mrs. Suave somewhere. As for me, I'm snuggled up to a cranberry gin cocktail, courtesy of mixologist Pink Campari, also known as Karen Cushman from Montevilla in Portland, Oregon. It's gin, rich, simple syrup, lemon juice, and delicious. You can link to the recipe at mrswav.com. Don't forget to spell out the mister. When I tend bar, I'm Mary, queen of cosmos. But when, in the darkest of winter, I write and ponder music and think of the holidays and write some more, I can get a little serious, a little... Over sentimental, more merry queen of drowning in her sorrows. Perhaps it's telling that my all-time favorite holiday song is "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas." The earlier, more maudlin 1944 version with the less than encouraging lyric, "Until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow." It was Sinatra who, in 1957, asked for a peppy reboot to include on his jolly Christmas album, resulting in the more cheerful Hang a Shining Star upon the Highest Bough. Me, whether tending bar or in life, I'm more inclined to muddle, even or maybe more so at Christmas. Thank God for the polarizing forces of sarcasm.
2: without drinking
3: is rough.
2: Turns out football is boring. My wife's sister ain't as cute as I thought she was and I cannot
3: play the guitar.
4: Get
5: drunk and sing Christmas carols like I did last year. Santa Claus, Santa Claus, hear my plea. Open up your bag and give a fine brown baby to me. I want a present for Christmas. Tired of being all
4: alone.
5: I'm worse off than a hermit. I dog without a born. Stop by my chimney, drop her in the chute Leave your reindeer outside, come in and get my loot I want a present for Christmas Tired of being all alone I'm worse off than a hermit Or a dog without a bone I want a big pair of stocking Any kind of gauge you can fill up my stocking with some girl my age I want a present for Christmas Tired being all alone I'm worse off than a hermit. Or a dog without a bone
4: The seven of got
1: My favorite things is Mr. Suave's Modcast, which you can find under your tree every week of the year at mrsuave.com. Don't forget to spell out the mister. And while I love all Mr. Suave's podcasts, I'm especially fond of his holiday invitationals. The chance to hear new takes on classics, New songs that will become classics, or classics that I, at least, naively missed from the hideaway of my secluded suburban childhood. I'd venture most of us devotees of Mr. Suave's Mod Mod World have a lot in common. In our adolescence, I suspect, we found identity and maybe even a kind of salvation in fringe culture. The moment Mr. Suave stumbled upon scooter culture at summer camp for example, more on this in 2018. For me, it was silver screen movies on videotape. I imagine we can all recall with great precision these gateway artistic experiences, those pivotal, timely introductions to worlds we, drowning in the depths of awkward teen angst, desperately needed for survival. Another shared instinct, I suspect, is the propensity to immerse ourselves in new and different music. How early in life, an encounter with one song prompted us to dive into the work of a particular artist, which led to the discovery of yet another band and yet another producer, which eventually pointed us in the direction of a different genre. We're a thirsty people. We, shall I call us, suavaholics? We're a thirsty people and never fully sated, always searching for more. And music punctuates our life, our milestones, our strongest memories, so of course, of course, music is especially important to us at the holidays. So dad, I plan out our whole day. First we'll make snow angels for two hours, and then we'll go ice skating, and then we'll eat a whole roll of Toll House cookie dough as fast as we can, and then, to finish, we'll snuggle. trying to write about the song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, to squeeze it into one of Mr. Suave's Christmas extravaganzas since he first invited me to participate in 2014. It was one of those pivotal gateway songs for me. I rediscovered an interview recently, Terry Gross talking with Hugh Martin, the song's composer, about how it came to be. She asserted that While many holiday hits can wear thin, there's an enduring quality about Merry Little Christmas. When she said this, a disheveled, middle-aged George Bailey flashed on the screen of my eyes. Not the young, gleaming football hero, shiny and hope-filled with dreams of travel and adventure and a wonderful life, but the frumpy George, anchored to obligations in his worn and ill-fitting suit, Slick hair, stringy and gray at the temples, cheeks and jawline smudged with faint stubble. And in a flash, I see him trudging up the staircase of the drafty old house he and Mary have filled with children. Moments earlier, he'd snapped at her. You call this a happy family? Why do we have to have all these kids? Eldest daughter Janie is meanwhile plunking Hark the Herald Angels Sing on an upright piano in the next room. It's Christmas Eve, and three of the four children are swarming in busy preparedness, asking precocious questions in that sing-song, vapid tone from films of yore. I went back and re-watched to contextualize my cinematic memory. Capra's cluttered set and sound design are masterful. Chaos is brewing just under the lid. In a huff, George leaves Mary to the chores and the children and stomps up the steps to find Zuzu. And as he slogs, grabbing the railing for support, the ball cap wriggles loose in his hand. You know, those ornamental globes that adorn banisters in old creaky houses. At the height of this particular tantrum, when George pulls the ball cap off, his face flashes with rage. Stewart's acting is superb. It seems for a moment he's going to pitch that ball cap with the intent to kill, maybe even directly at Janie, to silence the goddamn piano. But he doesn't. He composes himself and resets it, the ball cap on the banister. Yet, in that moment, we understand that ball cap to represent everything he resents about his not-so-wonderful life. The responsibilities he's accepted both willingly and begrudgingly because on the one hand hormones and biology donna reed was hot and on the other his chronic and nearly fatal sense of familial obligation in stewart's glower we understand that this ball cap has always been broken it will always be broken It's one of those nagging tasks on our to-do lists that we will always feel bad about, but we'll never get to. As a shy and insecure adolescent, I glossed over George's midlife crisis. I was more enamored of George's and Mary's romantic origin story and the happy, rosy ending. With limited social skills and tremendous anxiety navigating peer pressure, I sequestered my teenage self most evenings and weekends to the kitchen within close view of the television and boxy VCR. While others my age were out taking developmentally appropriate risks, nightly I perched over a heater vent on the green and white linoleum, warming myself to the flicker of black and white films. It was still miraculous that I could pop in a tape and watch an entire movie in my own home, all by myself. And in Mary and George, I found hope that I might find romance too. And that sounds stupid to say out loud. But Mary's worst case alter ego was a tightly wound librarian, definitely someone I could identify with.
0: Christmas finally comes And nobody's got a gun And you think it might be fun To get a new Toy. toy
6: Christmas.
1: It's the first film we rented when we purchased a VCR, one of those gray clunky top loaders. I watched it with my mom and my sisters over dinner one night when my dad was out of town. I loved it when he'd travel for business. Sensible dinners were abandoned for drive through McDonald's or banquet chicken dinners. There was something special and cozy about our Just Us Girls evenings. Without the distractions of Dad and their habit of cocktail hour, Mom could hunker down and hang out with us. She'd been a shy kid, too, so she introduced us to all the movies that kept her company growing up. Along with the films of Rosalind Russell, Jack Lemmon, and Billy Wilder, Judy Garland and Meet Me in St. Louis were on the top of her list. And Meet Me in St. Louis is a perfect MGM movie musical. Resplendent in 1944 technicolor, Judy Garland is dewy and beautiful, the world yet unaware of Hollywood forces pressuring her to lose weight and pop pills. Vincent Minnelli directs, and I hate to use the word curate because of its fraudulent overuse, but in this instance, it's really my only choice. Minnelli directs and curates a collection of songs arranged to highlight Garland's vocal range and strengths. It's difficult not to fall in love with her in this film, and unsurprising to find out Minnelli was doing exactly that. The couple was married in 1945, and baby Liza was born in 1946. Meet Me in St. Louis invites us to spend a year in the life of the the turn-of-the-century Smith family as they await the grand opening of the 1904 World's Fair. The costumes are glorious, colorful, textured, perfectly tailored. Do an image search of Judy Garland, tennis dress, St. Louis. The sets are opulent. Margaret O'Brien also stars She plays Garland's youngest sister and is a charismatic force of her own. It's to O'Brien that Garland sings Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. The family is on the verge of a move. Their father has just accepted a job in New York. He is excited, but his children are miserable at the prospect of leaving their home and friends behind. Garland's character, Esther, returns home late after a Christmas ball to find her sister Tootie weeping at the thought of spending future holidays anywhere but St. Louis. O'Brien's tears are real and only intensify as Garland attempts to console her with song. I sometimes wonder if they took camera breaks to torture O'Brien in some barely appropriate way. The waterworks are so authentic and intense. Martin's first lyrics were even more bleak than the muddling version. He originally wrote, "'Have yourself a merry little Christmas. "'It may be your last. "'Next year, we may all be living in the past.'" Manelli rejected that verse on the spot, and Martin returned with the muddling version. Regardless, as soon as Esther finishes singing in the movie, baby sister Tootie goes full-tilt-destructive, slaying her small village of snow people to keep others from inheriting them in the future.
6: another one And then I sang a song The rare old mountain here I turned my face away And dreamed about you Got on a lucky one Kevin See
4: You promised me Broadway was waiting for me You were handsome,
6: you were pretty queen of New York City when when the band finished playing playing. They held out for more Sinatra Sinatra was swinging, all the jokes they were singing We We kissed on the corner, then danced through the night The boys of the Envoy, Penny Coyle, were singing Go away, babe And the bells were ringing out for Christmas Day. Day are ringing out for Christmas Day. (laughs)
2: f <laughs>
1: about films like It's a Wonderful Life with songs like Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, what I didn't understand, even though I was drawn to them when I was younger, was their emotional complexity. And I'm not trying to sound hoity-toity here. I'm talking about the appeal of art and music that helps us learn to navigate that tightrope balance between anticipation and disappointment. I'm reminded of a doll I was excited to unwrap two nights before Christmas. I was six years old, give or take, about that age when you can spend an entire Saturday painfully stocking all the gifts beneath the tree, obsessing over packages with your name, angry at the sight of any tag written for somebody else. For the course of a week, I remember presents slowly multiplying, Not to overabundance, mind you, it was the 70s after all. One day there appeared, a little bigger than a shoebox, a gift for me. I'd seen her at a craft fair. Her hair was a braided brown yarn, especially alluring because most dolls of that era were Marsha Brady Blonde. And while she didn't have freckles, she was close enough. I'd never had a doll, you see, and I wanted one that looked like me if I was to have one at all. I'd hinted and hoped for weeks on end, and when that shoe-sized box materialized in shiny green paper, I pleaded unrelentingly. Eventually, and understandably, my parents caved. I sliced through the wrapping, dug into the box, and for the briefest of moments was elated. But soon, after studying the carefully stitched features of her cloth face and examining the minute details of her purple gingham dress, I found myself uncomfortably disappointed and bored. What does one do with a doll? She wasn't interactive. Dolls don't do anything. So I lighted on the solution of styling her hair. I could unbraid and braid it again and teach myself and eventually learn to plate my own slippery locks. Except once I'd unwound the original strands and untied the perfect symmetrical bows, I couldn't get them back. My braids were lumpy and uneven and loose, and the bows were sloppy knots, and just like George Bailey's banister, my doll was broken. I resented her, but because of all my begging, I couldn't get rid of her. I was stuck with something I thought I'd wanted. I was stuck with something that I just couldn't fix. In the moment we're living them, we can't predict what experiences will stick. The memories that will sustain us, the memories that will haunt us. In 1975, I couldn't fathom feeling guilty about a yarn-haired doll well into adulthood. In 1984, I could not have told you that watching old movies and eating baked fish sticks with my mom would be an indelible experience. I don't remember many of the specifics, mostly a feeling of safety and connection. And of course, I remember watching Meet Me in St. Louis, and I remember the introduction to more movies, and to music, experiences that allowed me time and space to explore real feelings, complex feelings, all the feelings. There's something about Christmas, the long dark nights, especially in Seattle, our homes and trees draped in lights the food and traditions, the gatherings of family and friends. There's something about Christmas that invites a similar kind of nostalgic introspection. It's a time for examination, an opportunity to reflect on our muddling, both individually and collectively. The chance to regroup and recharge with people we love. A time to consider our stories. The chapters we want to publish, those we want to trash, and those we want to rewrite. This is Mary, Queen of Cosmos, wishing you a Merry Little Christmas. Here's to 2018. Let's muddle on. Cheers. we
3: Shut the doors. Some people need to learn about Christmas.